Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Brussels Playbook column. In this week's episode, we cover a lot of ground, from the Trump effects and homegrown violence at the G20 summit in Hamburg, Germany, to what's next for the European Union, riding high over its recently sealed EU-Japan trade deal. A man who barks out vile in 140 characters, who wastes his precious days as president at war with the West's institutions like the judiciary, independent government agencies and the free press. He was an uneasy, lonely, awkward figure at this gathering and you got the strong sense that some of the leaders are trying to find the best way to work around him. What a rough week for Trump. Universally panned for his summit performance and the world no clearer about what alternative he plans to provide to the current Western order. Our main guest this week, Maritza Scharke, a Liberal Dutch member of the European Parliament and one of that institution's great backers of strong transatlantic relations, is very worried about the direction the US is travelling in. I think it's damaging not only the United States, but really, you know, the democratic world, the open societies of this world. And there's a big task for us in Europe to fill the void. The EU, on the other hand, now runs the risk of getting complacent. Brussels thinks it's got all the cards in the Brexit negotiations. The town, even the farmers here, are mega happy about that Japan deal, even though it's lacking a couple of important chapters on investment and data. And things are also looking up for Greece. It's no longer under special EU budget surveillance, and its latest round of bailout cash has been approved. But before we dive into these topics, I wanted to thank you for your support. Our listenership is growing with each episode, and if you can rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you found this podcast, and share it with your friends and colleagues, we'll do even better. So on this week's episode of EU Confidential, we're discussing a lot of trade policy and the fallout from the G20 summit and the role that Donald Trump has played in all trade policy debates since he was elected. Joining me is Christian Oliver, Politico's trade editor. Welcome, Christian. Thank you very much. No underestimation to say that you're, in fact, our trade policy supremo. So we are really setting the trade world on fire with the sorts of discussions we have with your team. So now that I've placed all those expectations on you, Christian, let's dive into it. Trump clearly is the big elephant in the room. We've had the EU-Japan trade deal where they reached political agreement last week. Now that the dust has settled, where do you think the three players are lined up? How would each of them be feeling? I think the most interesting one to start with is Japan itself. Because for those of us who've been watching this for the last three or four years, we never thought that Japan would really get the momentum going to get this done. And there are a lot of very interesting factors going on there. But 
fundamentally, you've got to see that how important the US was in the Japanese view of the world, in terms of its supreme ally, in terms of where it stands strategically versus Chinese naval expansion versus saber-rattling in North Korea. The relationship with the United States through the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, was everything. That was their priority. For that reason, we never really thought that they would build such momentum towards going for a deal with Europe. The speed that this has happened is really remarkable. And we can really only lay that very squarely at the doorstep of Trump. As soon as he pulled out of the TPP, actually for several weeks, the Japanese seemed in some sense of denial. Is this really happening to us? They tried to save it. They tried to engineer this deal back. Didn't happen. The speed, however, of a political deal, forced along the way by Merkel leaning on Juncker, I think is extraordinary. It shows to what extent the Japanese, who are often, despite being spurred into life by what the Koreans were doing, they've been very conservative about this sort of stuff. They've been very scared about their farmers. So this is a very significant thing to have happened. So Japan got something that they wanted out of the process. Uh, We're still not really any wiser about what the US has been getting out of all of Trump's maneuverings. And the EU seems to be smiling maybe more than any of the others because it's walked away with a deal it didn't think it was going to get. The EU, in some senses, this is one of their easy deals because they're often the biggest political opponents of the farmers. This one, the farmers are happy. Clearly, US farmers are very unhappy. They feel that they these are the, exactly the sort of things they thought they could get out of TPP. And one of the most interesting things about this deal is, in fact, the Europeans have just moved in to fill in the gap that was left by the Americans in TPP. So the sort of terms that the Americans were going to get have gone to the Europeans. So if we think about what Theresa May was saying around trade at the G20 summit, she was talking very optimistically about the sort of deals the UK could do, suggesting that leaders were being very positive, obviously taking advantage of Trump, saying that he was willing to do a quick deal with the UK. Is the EU-Japan situation a bit of a template for that? Can you take trade ideas and chapters of trade deals off the shelf and apply them to new contexts? Or is Theresa May really just being way too optimistic? And Yeah, no, I think that's fantasy. I think that those, the, the nature of the EU-Japan deal and the nature of what we're talking about with Britain at the moment exist in completely different realms. Japan was negotiated hard in detail, minutiae, by sets of professional full-time negotiators. For something like eight years now. Well, four, but there had been a long time exploratory processes. All the time that the Europeans were dealing with the South Koreans, there'd always been this thing in the back of their mind of how does this work with Japan? Because once you start to work with the South Koreans, you're worrying how all the industrial relations with um, industrial exports in particular work across Asia. So it had clearly been in their mind. They've been doing this kind of arithmetic. Britain is brand new to this game. It doesn't have the teams. The reason Malmstrom is so relaxed about this mm-hmm. is she knows that the negotiations are not real. Trump might be thinking that he's going to give something of political significance to May at the end of the Brexit process. What on earth this is, we would very much like to know. It's also a dog-eat-dog world, so the US aren't coming for free to negotiate. Yes. I mean, that is always the danger. But I think in terms of this relationship, particularly US-UK, I would have thought the British would want to be extremely vigilant about everything that was in there when they are so much the minor party. 
the junior party always has to think far harder about what it needs to give away. And let's come to a final case in point then, which is the possibility of an EU-Australia trade deal. Now, I remember I was still working in the Commission when that idea was first floated. The EU was quite reluctant to commit to anything like a free trade deal with Australia. Mm. They had big problems even getting something like a wine deal because of all of the geographic indicators and all of the demands that Europe places on its trading partners there. Nevertheless, there seems to be a bit of forward momentum for that deal. And that's not really good news for the UK because Australia is a member of the British Commonwealth. It's supposed to be exactly the sort of country that the UK can turn to to do a quick deal. And Australia's discussions at the G20 were very clearly not pointing towards the UK, but to thinking, let's make a priority with the EU. And Donald Tusk, maybe it was just generic words that he was using, but he he sent some of the right signals there for Australia. And it doesn't give me a lot of hope about where the UK is in this scenario. No, although coming back to the farmers, Australia is one of their main concerns. So if we think that the power of the farmers is the ability to sabotage trade deals, that's where at the moment the farmers are saying, hang on, what's with Argentina, Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, potentially the United States, on the back of Canada, this is all big agri-territory. They were very happy to go along with Japan because they have the offensive interests there. But if there is one thing that can keep Australia snarled for quite a long time, it's going to be the European agriculture interests. Britain, they might find, could find it far easier to sell its farmers down the river. Christian Oliver, thank you for joining us here on EU Confidential. Thank you very much. After that detailed look at trade policy, it's now time to take a step back and look at the politics around trade and where the transatlantic relationship is headed. For that conversation, I went down to the European Parliament recording studios and talked to Maricha Sharka. Okay, I'm here with Maritza Scharke, who is a Dutch Liberal MEP from the European Parliament, and she is an expert in quite a few of the issues that have been in the headlines over the past week. And so I thought it would be great to sit down with you, Maritza. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And now those issues that were really in lots of our minds over the past week included the G20 summit and all of the reactions to the globalization that that body represents, the fact that the EU and Japan have seen a trade deal that very few people expected them to seal, at least on this timeline. Mm -hmm. So that is obviously a big piece of backlash for what Donald Trump has been injecting into the political debate. And we're at this really tense moment in transatlantic relations. So I don't know about you, my head is spinning. How are you feeling after all of these events? Well, let me look at the glass half full first, because I was very happy to see the EU-Japan deal made on a political level last week. Some people saw it as a surprise, but actually for me, you know, working on trade constantly, it was not at all a surprise. There have been negotiations for four years and it was quite a political balance that the Japanese had to seek between big disappointment in the United States where President Trump tore up the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was very important for Japan. I was actually very happy that they took the decision to go ahead with the EU. There were important concessions that we needed from them that were made. And so I see it as a very important signal at a very important moment where Japan and the EU, important allies based on the same values of openness and democracy, 
are actually going to strengthen the rules around their trade relationship and as a result strengthen their alliance or partnership in a world where it's important to know who your friends are. One thing that is missing from the deal, though, is some kind of chapter around the flow of free data or free flow of data. Mm -hmm. Is that something that was disappointing to you as someone who's always advocated that we need an open internet and we have to include these things in international deals? Well, I do see Japan as a clear partner when it comes to standing for the open internet. They have big concerns about a country like China around the corner, basing their digital economy on a very top-down, hierarchical not open, but very restrictive kind of model. So I think we need to cherish the partnership with Japan and it would be good to have clear rules guiding digital trade as part of these new arrangements that we have with them. But, you know, it's still possible. So hopefully this will be worked out in more detail later, as well as the whole... Because it's just the political agreement so far, isn't it? There's... Yeah, you know, they're, they're, there could also be a hurdle along the way. We've seen that before with the, sure. the EU-Canada deal. Sure, I was being optimistic and I hope that some <laughs> of right, the details... <laughs> yes, so I still hope that details that are unclear now or that may need some work will be worked out because I think that this political signal and the political will is very encouraging and important at this moment in time. But of course, if there are differences between our systems or if there's not political support or adequate technical solutions for rules around digital trade or investment protection, another one of those hot topics that's still not worked out in detail, then we have to accept that those will be elements that we cannot put in this agreement. Indeed. And now one other person who was taking a glass half full attitude over the weekend was Theresa May. She seemed very optimistic about the reaction that she was getting from world leaders about the idea of post-Brexit trade deals. Following it from the European Parliament, where we've seen an open letter come out this week, where really a supermajority of MEPs were saying, you're on the wrong track when it comes to Brexit, Theresa May. Do you have confidence that the UK is going to be able to get out there and do quick trade deals? Or is that just something that is impossible in this political context and and because of the nature of trade deals? Yeah, it's yet another thing that I hear uh, a leader of the Tory party, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, saying where I think... Where's the sense of realism and what kind of narrative are you projecting out there and how are you ever going to meet it? Because everybody knows, including Theresa May, that the UK is not even allowed to seal bilateral trade deals until they have actually left the European Union. And on top of that, it would seem to me that the most important thing after that is to have good arrangements on trade and also on other cooperation with their most important partner, and that is the EU27. So to go around pretending that you can already engage in negotiations with other countries without knowing what kind of arrangements you have with the EU is, I think, unrealistic. And it could set yourself up for very difficult negotiations because you're very revealing in terms of your eagerness to go around and to have bilateral deals. And apparently she needs the successes, right? I mean, frankly, there's not that many of them. And we all know a trade deal is hundreds of pages long. It's not a soundbite. And that, I mean, it's not my job to say whether it's good or bad, but it does strike me that she speaks in these very generic terms about frankly, very complex topics. And so you see there's a bit of a mismatch between whatever it is she's trying to get across to her domestic audience and then just the boring reality of doing an international trade deal. It's complicated and it's also there is a correlation between them. So if you make a concession or an agreement with one trading partner, that influences what the other might ask. You know, if you have a very open 
trade relation with one partner, then others will think, well, if they can get this level of openness, why can't we? This simplified notion of, oh, great, we'll just do trade with everybody is far from the complex reality, the political tension around what 21st century trade deals look like. I mean, you have a Labour Party that is moving more and more to the left. What are they going to think? What is it going to mean for the support for Theresa May's agenda, not only for Brexit negotiations, but more broadly? So I I like optimism, but I, it, it seems a bit simplified, yes. Now, getting into the glass half empty... I might put the Donald Trump impact into that category. As someone who's really been a transatlanticist for quite a long time, what worries you most at the moment about where this relationship is heading and where the administration is taking the relationship? The rapid decline in moral credibility, moral leadership of the United States. I mean, the attacks on the rule of law, on media and journalists, but also on minorities... And the vulgar language that is used, I think, is in such sharp contrast of the promise of what the United States could be and should aspire to being. I really think it is extraordinary. And I think it's damaging not only the United States, but really, you know, the democratic world, the open societies of this world. And there's a big task for us in Europe to fill the void. That really struck me. We had an Australian political commentator. I don't know if you saw yes. this clip at all of him where he just said Donald Trump is spending his precious days as president attacking the West's institutions. And I put that together with watching him take Putin's side or take his word that there was no Russian state hacking of the mm-hmm. US elections over his Trump's own intelligence agencies. You know, it is like a, a drunk driver. You know, you just don't know where the sharp turn is going to be next. And it's just going off-road and then slightly back on the road. And it's just so... So Do we have to stay on the road? Or do we have to take a defensive driving course to figure out how to deal with it? Well, I think we have to be very clear that, you know, with this president at the wheel of the United States, our relationship with the US has changed drastically, but also global dynamics and the balance of power is changing dramatically. And the world order that we know... And that, in my opinion, benefits us as the European Union, as Europeans, but as democratic countries, as people who believe in the rule of law, in multilateralism. That global order is something that we have built with the United States step by step after World War II and the painful lessons that both of us learned from that period in time. And... It is a huge responsibility to take care of that system and to make it better, to modernize it, reform it where it's necessary. And that's the kind of agenda that I think we should double down on. Where could we actually pursue that in concrete terms? We've definitely seen with climate change, for example, you know, the EU has never been afraid to sort of claim a moral high ground in that field. And sometimes with evidence to back it, sometimes not always Mm. following its own words. But beyond climate change, for example, do we need to go in a more hard power direction with the defence capabilities or is it other types of soft power we need to project? So I think that the trade agreements here are a very good example of the right signal at the right time, that we believe in a rules-based system and in relations with other countries. But the same should be done much more ambitiously for defence cooperation. And I do think that the political momentum has shifted in Europe. I mean, this is a discussion that has been going on and on. And there were times not that long ago where if you mentioned a European army, people would vilify you as if you wanted some kind of, you know, super state. But clearly now 
the discussion has shifted to a need to be able to contribute more actively to the NATO alliance, which is the key, but to be better as European partners and to be able to have better capacity amongst ourselves, better division of labor, uh, purchases, maintenance, so that our our euro is worth more uh, by working together. Indeed. Now, a bit of a curveball for you, but mentioning the NATO alliance reminds me that the Ukrainian government said that they would be very keen to join NATO. And there's been a reaction from Jens Stoltenberg saying that he would welcome those discussions. And there's a summit this Mm. week between the EU and Ukraine. Mm. But as a Dutch member of parliament who's lived through the problems that existed around the EU-Ukraine association agreement and the referendum that took place in the Netherlands, Mm. do you think that's something that that NATO and European countries in NATO can pull off, bringing Ukraine into that fold? Or is it something that we need to tread carefully around? We do need to tread carefully around it. But of course, it is, you know, a sovereign country decision to seek that, to aspire to join the NATO alliance. And it is up to the alliance to assess whether this country meets the criteria. But I think it's very important that we already, without any hesitation, state that Ukraine is part of our broader Europe, part of a community where we want to see the same values, respect for the rule of law, democratic development, increase in their prosperity, because it is in our interest that such a major neighbor provides a better quality of life and a stronger adherence to principles and values. And so there should not be this artificial division in that sense. But of course, the whole question around NATO is very sensitive also vis-a-vis Russia. And If we're seeking to de-escalate the conflict that is there, the war that is there, and that is costing lives every day, I believe that we have to keep that in mind as well. Now, Angela Merkel was a key figure in all of these themes. You can't get a trade deal done unless Angela Merkel supports it. She's Mm -hmm. often the person Trump calls Mm -hmm. when he wants to be in touch with Europe one way or another. Mm -hmm. And she's got an election coming up in September. So you know, not wanting to put thoughts into her mouth, but it must have been quite frightening to see all these endless images of the carnage around the G20 protests. And I'd be keen to hear what you think about whether that sort of context for the summit is something that might actually help her because she seems reasonable and and stable by comparison, Mm. or whether that's a kind of really difficult situation for her to be in now because this wasn't exactly a summit where people came and gave her flowers afterwards. It was a bit of damage control the whole way through. Mm. I mean, I was shocked to see the intensity of the violence that was used and there's no excuse for it. I mean, the right to demonstrate peacefully is guaranteed in Europe. If you don't like capitalism, if you want to say something against world leaders and say it loudly and clearly, go ahead. But the kind of damage that was done to innocent shop owners, to people, you know, extraordinary violence that was used, which I think is inexcusable, really. And so that's where the responsibility lies, first and foremost. And I I almost hope that they won't politicize this issue. I mean, I heard sound bites from both sides, the Socialist uh, Party saying that the government had not taken its responsibility, that it was absurd to have G20 summit in the middle of a big city. And then others saying, well, if you give in to the kind of threat that this violence poses, then where can you hold a summit? So you have to stand We're for the right. We're all stuck in Davos for the rest of our lives, which, well, you know, <laughs> that doesn't lovely sound though Davos attractive. is, it's not, a, it's not the right signal for democracy, is it? If you have to run up to a mountaintop no, every I time agree. you want to meet. I agree fully. So I think that these kinds of summits should be possible with protests, but peaceful protests. We've learned in the past that the far right has been overlooked before and has actually killed people with attacks that seem to come out of nowhere. And to some extent, this 
aggression that still exists in the far left may have surprised people too. I've already heard calls for more intelligence, more special research into the networks on the far now, left. That is quite something. I was reading articles today where I don't know if you could call it a consensus yet, but clearly quite a few actors saying, well, it's time to have a database of these extreme activists. And I thought in German terms, that's going a long way because Germans are usually very allergic to that sort of data collection, that sort of surveillance that could be reminiscent of the East German regime. So I was very surprised to see that sort of reaction, I admit. Well, I think it's also an emotional reaction that we often see after escalations or attacks that people want to do something. But indeed, the respect for the liberties that we cherish and that we don't want to see attacked is very important. So I think that measures should be even-handed. It, it would be a mistake to focus on one threat and overlook the other. And perhaps there are lessons learned. I'm not in a position to tell, but there could well be. But with any measure, I believe that civil liberties need to be protected. And that is actually what makes us here in Europe, uh, open societies, stand out from those who want to undermine the open societies. And we have to be very vigilant. Well, another thing that makes Europeans stand out is their willingness to embrace long holidays. And it's almost summer. Have you got any holiday plans, any exciting adventures coming up? Well, you could say it's an exciting adventure, but it's not a holiday because the high representative Federica Mogherini appointed me to be the chief observer of the EU mission to monitor the Kenyan elections. And so I'll be going back to Kenya a lot this summer okay. uh, to so work. that's not just a one-off trip for the elections themselves. No, actually, in my case, it is a, a longer period of time. The elections will take place on August 8th. And there's a lot at stake. Uh, it's a very lively campaign and uh, it would be extremely important for Kenya to take a solid step towards consolidating democratic process, new constitution since 2010 that aspires to have a better balance of power, better gender balance. It's one of the most significant missions that the EU has ever sent. And I think it's testimony to how important Kenya is for us in East Africa and as a partner that we really hope that we can contribute a little bit to this important election. Well, congratulations on your appointment. For anyone who was feeling hard done by with their holiday plans or their holiday situation, just remember Maricha is out there working hard with your tax money all the way through. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Well, I'm glad someone is going to be monitoring the Kenyan elections, but I have to say I'm even more pleased that we turn to the fun part of the podcast now to discuss the latest EU WTF moment and also solve your problems with our Brussels Brains Trust of Lena Abarus and Alva Finn in our Dear Politico advice section. Hi, Alva Finn. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena Abarus. Hi, Ryan. So, the next EU WTF is about a Ryanair exclusive partnership. Doesn't that sound so exclusive and fantastic? They've <laughs> gone into a partnership with something called the Erasmus Student Network. Now, that is not an official EU organisation, but it is an organisation that receives EU money. And Ryanair have received the endorsement of Commissioner Bulch, who is the Transport Commissioner of the European Union. And so the idea behind this partnership is that Ryanair wants to give its backing or to win new customers. I don't want to speculate on their motive, but they're going to give discounts for eight flights that students might take when they're going to and from their Erasmus uh, student exchange programs. So seems really generous. Yay, EU having a relationship with the biggest airline in Europe. But my question for both of you is, is it okay 
for the EU or an EU-related body to enter into a commercial relationship like this? Is it kind of dignified for a commissioner to back this kind of exclusive commercial partnership? And wow, isn't this a bit bizarre? Ryanair have been fighting with the EU for years. Mm -hmm. So what the hell are they even doing having this partnership? Actually, still fighting with the EU, (laughs) I believe, Ryanair. Look, it could be part of their corporate social responsibility and giving back to the communities and trying to work with a very important part of the community, which are the students. It's a huge, in Europe, the students, they move, they are a majority. Yet my only concern here is when I looked into it a little bit more, I found out that they have partnerships with other airlines and other companies. Just so it's not wondering, exclusive. Not exclusive. So I was just wondering, why would the commissioner, maybe because she would like other companies to encourage them, to tell them, look, I will upload you, I will tweet you, I will promote you if you uh, give back to the community and support our Erasmus program and our Erasmus student. Wonderful. But she should do that for the rest of the airline companies. I mean, I think when you were saying that they were linked to other airlines, I think it's through something else. This is kind of like an exclusive deal for Erasmus students that I suppose is a different sort of package. I think it's just smart of Ryanair to have linked up with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's smart for Ryanair to have linked up with this European student network. Uh, Just because they get European funding doesn't mean that they can't make a deal with Ryanair. They're not the European Commission. Whether or not the commissioner should have endorsed it, I don't know. Well, if if there isn't any of these types of partnerships going on, then why not promote the one that is happening? I think it's just a kind of situation of the European or the Erasmus student network giving its members something that they probably want. And Ryanair is the biggest airline in, in Europe. And let's face it, the biggest political party is trying to give away free train passes exactly. to 18-year-olds. So my big question there was, well, if you're going to give away a free train pass, why wouldn't you give away a ticket on a cheap airline? Yeah, I mean, why force waited. people to get on the train? She could have waited until the partnerships, there are some results. Because, you know, not all companies, when you sign an agreement with them, they honour these partnerships. So mm. maybe <laughs> we wait a little bit, we ask the students that they really get the eight free flights. And yeah, then we'll, we'll find out how many students were and, uh, not yeah. allowed on. I would be yeah one like free check bag this, yeah. yeah it all it, it does sound a little bit different to the standard Ryan oh, right process exactly. yeah. and welcome now to this week's dear Politico section where we try to answer listener questions concerns problems with the Brussels Brains Trust this week we've got a letter from Catherine who says that she works at the European Parliament for an MEP. What a surprise. It seems like every week they come from the European Parliament. Uh, And that the MEP takes two assistants with him to Strasbourg when it has its sessions down there in France, and sometimes also his wife and child. Then, quote, When he does, I am expected to babysit his young child when he goes out with his wife. This is unacceptable, as he does not ask my male colleague to do this. I came to Brussels equipped with a PhD and high expectations of what it means to work in professional and respectable atmospheres. I am sure I am not the only assistant who faces such difficulties. Is this sort of behaviour normal in Brussels? Should we keep accepting this? What do you say to Catherine? No. It's a bit unfortunate that you didn't just say no the very first time because now there's an expectation, I think, from your boss. I think you're absolutely right that it is gendered. He probably wouldn't have asked your male colleague because... 
you're a woman and women take care of children, mm -hmm. etc. So what I would do is I would bring this up with your boss and just say, you know, I'm exhausted and I understand that you need to spend time with your wife. And you're but also really well paid to hire yeah, a babysitter. Can you, can you please hire a babysitter? Because if this is one thing he's asking you to do, which is totally beyond your job description, what else is he going to ask you to do? What if he has another kid? Then you'll have, you know, two kids on your lap in Strasbourg when you could be sleeping. Uh, I think Lena, you're laughing. <laughs> Tell us, what do you think here? I don't want to imagine. I'm terribly sorry, Catherine, to imagine you with two kids on your lap now after a hectic day Someone in Strasbourg. And it's, they are not your kids, imagine. Look, maybe, maybe you're too nice. Maybe you're too funny with the kids and you're too friendly with the wife. Maybe it's part of your nature. Maybe try to avoid them, try to ignore them, uh, try to pretend you're busy when the child and his wife, you encounter them, be so brief. I just thought of one idea. Next time he asks you, tell him, oh, you know, I have a sore throat. Or, you know what, I have a rash. And try to say that in front of his wife, because the wife will be more concerned oh, about the child, about... You never I mean, know. I'm not saying it wouldn't be effective, but if I'm thinking here as a manager, first of all, I think it's unacceptable, but not just because he wouldn't ask a man to do it, but she because it's not be your so job. Shy. So it's unacceptable at two levels. But secondly, a manager, I want you to come to me with a solution, not with an excuse or a workaround. So while you shouldn't have to do this, maybe if you came with a babysitter option and said, hey, here's the number of a good babysitter, or here's a registered service in Strasbourg. And then it's not, you know, making up some false excuse, but it's saying, okay, I'm drawing a line here, but I'm also not just trying to make your day hell. I'm giving you a solution to our shared problem. Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably a trusted person. You know, Strasbourg, it's another place where it's probably quite difficult for them to find babysitters. You know, they're only there a few times a month, etc. To find someone that you trust, I think that's probably part of the problem. He probably trusts you or she. Oh, we don't know probably trust you a little bit too much but I think it is something that you're just going to have to say you know like I'm very tired but can I try and find you someone who we could trust that would mind the kid when they go out with his wife I think you should just be upfront, to be honest maybe it is that you've given off an air of not minding and I think if you have done that you really need to change that you need to seem put out and then you also need to kind of address it because it, if it looks like oh you're kind of just acquiescing because you like children or etc then that behavior needs to stop but you should just say it I think and then provide a solution as Ryan said and to answer your final point Catherine you definitely aren't alone because I have heard this is a problem mm. with other MEP assistants you're the first person to write to us with the problem and but there are certainly so. other people who have yeah and MEPs get your own child care your assistants <laughs> are you have hired them to work in politics they're not child minders well done thank you Alva thank you Lena and thank you, listeners. We hope that you will write to us with more challenges and concerns. Hopefully not too bad. We don't want you to have the challenges and concerns. But if you do have them, write to playbook at politico.eu and we will treat them uh, anonymously and in confidence. That wraps up another EU Confidential. Please help us spread the word about the podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or on SoundCloud. Write a review as well. Share it on social media or tell your friends and colleagues. That's how we will build up a bigger podcast community and make this podcast better and better. Send your ideas, your feedback, your dilemmas to playbook at politico.eu. Every podcast is a team effort. So I want to make a special mention of the people who made this episode of EU Confidential possible. Wei Dong Lin, Ginger Harvey and Bjarke Smith-Meyer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another EU Confidential. Thank you.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.